This is Ideas. I'm David Cayley with the third and concluding program in our series, Community and Its Counterfeits. The series features John McKnight, a man who has been studying and organizing communities for most of the past 40 years. He began his career in the neighborhoods of Chicago in the 50s as an organizer for the first municipal civil rights organization in the United States. In the 60s, he worked for the Kennedy administration's Office of Equal Employment Opportunity and later for the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. Today, he directs the program in community studies at Northwestern University's Institute for Urban Affairs in suburban Chicago. He has been there since the Institute opened its doors in 1969 as a response to the discontents of that era in the inner cities of the United States. And from that position, he has been able to keep in touch with communities all over North America. One of the things we've tried to do over the years at the center where I am is to understand how problems get solved by trying to find places in communities where they have been solved. Now, most universities study the degree in the neighborhood of unsolvedness and therefore impute the need for an external intervention called the human service. They, they go out and they measure the emptiness. But they don't go out and measure the fullness. They don't try to find out how and when and where did what we want to have happen happen as a result of the interests, abilities, capacities, and associations in the neighborhood. John McKnight has centered his work on this search for the genius of local communities. In fact, he once described himself to me as a connoisseur of social invention. He believes that the great threat to the local gifts and capacities that he wants to celebrate comes from the world of professional services. Professional expertise, in his view, dominates and displaces local competence and knowledge. Emphasis on people's needs obscures their abilities. Institutionalization undermines mutual support. In extreme cases, people are reduced to nothing but needs and excluded from community life altogether. This has often been the case for people with certain kinds of severe disabilities. Reintroducing such people to community life has been one of John McKnight's main preoccupations in recent years, and he has convinced citizens like Bob Harkins in Prince George, British Columbia, to join him in this work. We have to go back to this old idea of hospitality and friendship that existed between neighbors that I don't think does exist today, and I think we have to get back to that. This program is about that effort to restore hospitality. It's based on interviews I recorded with John McKnight in Chicago in June of 1993, and on later conversations with Bob Harkins and Sandra Nahornoff, two of his collaborators in Prince George. The story begins with an observation John McKnight made about the character of what are often called community services. Some years ago, I was contacted by some people who provide services to developmentally disabled or previously called mentally retarded people who wanted to uh, show me what they had done in terms of creating a new kind of service which they called a community service. So I uh, took that opportunity to go with them in Vermont to visit the little town, a very picturesque little town, uh, 
And in this town, there was a, on, on a very ordinary street, a house, a home, a residence. And they took me there because they were, they were creating a community service in this place that they called a community residence. And in this place, there were eight adult men, mostly middle-aged, who had been in a big institution that had been closed down and had been brought instead to this residence where, surrounded by local human service people, they lived out their lives in this new community residence, which was supposed to be not like the institution where they were. And this is what they wanted to show me, these people living in the community. So I went there and uh, was there enough time that I could talk to some of the men and I asked them about what they did, who they know, knew, and what their relationships were. I mean, one of those things, at least, I think commonly, the community is about relationships. It's not a place. A neighborhood is a place. But a community is about people's relationships. And it turned out, excepting for the fact that some of the men bought cigarettes, the local drugstore knew the druggist, that they had been there for a good many years and they knew nobody. They lived out their lives in relationship with each other and with the people who were paid to come in and to prepare their meals and stay overnight and make sure they got up in the morning and help those who needed to be helped dress, dress. And then it would take them some to a sheltered workshop where they would work during the day and others to a little day program where they would sit do macro bay during the day, and then we take them back. And this was the human service agency's idea of somebody being in the community. That is, they could imagine calling this life in a house in a neighborhood surrounded by professionals to be a community life. And I think that's when it became clearest to me that there was a profound lack of understanding, it seemed to me, of many people in the human service profession who were at the progressive end of things about where the community was. This discovery set John McKnight off on a search for alternatives. Were there places, he wondered, where people with disabilities were part of a community? The answer turned out to be yes, places of several kinds. You would tend to find first places where the system had inadequate outreach, right? And so in a lot of out-of-the-way places, you would find uh, labeled folks in the community with a place in the community. But it was because the system hadn't gotten them. So from a system view, these were places where people were falling through the cracks. Now, another way people who were in the community got there was that their parents were determined that they would be there and that the professional advice that they go into a system, that they be institutionalized or that they be under professional care or that they go into special this and special that, they resisted it. A third way we found that people were in the community was that they fled from the system, they escaped. And then we found a fourth kind of situation. And that was a situation where somebody in the community decided 
that they were going to get to know people who were in the system and to try to introduce them to people in the community and to foster relationships there. John McKnight has made friends with people in all these categories over the years. People the system overlooked, people sustained in the community by parents, people who ran away. But he developed a particular interest in the last group, the people who built bridges from systems back into communities. Their unforced invitation to excluded people to rejoin the everyday world seemed to present a way by which communities could become whole again. And so McKnight sought out such people around the United States and made a study of their characters and practices. They tend to be people who focus on people's gifts rather than upon their needs. Now, people in the human service system, these people, these labeled people, their lives are focused on their deficiencies, right? But these are people who came and said, what are your gifts? They were never introducing an isolated person, a marginal person, a person who was a stranger to that community. They were never introducing them as people in need. They were never asking people to be charitable. They were never asking for help. They were always saying to the community, I have somebody who has a gift. And I'm looking for a place for the gift to be given. So that the diagnostic mentality, that is the naming of emptiness, your deficiency is. That truth about a person, that empty half, is not the focus, the full half is. And this is why professionals are so inappropriate for this work. The second thing is that they were people who tended to be well-connected in the community. If they walked into the coffee shop, half the people there would say, how you doing, Ted? So that they were people who knew the territory, knew citizen space, knew associational space, knew community space. Third thing is that they were people who tended to be trusted by community people. And because of that trust, their work was made much easier and much more effective. They were able to say to somebody in the community who trusted them, I have a friend. This is they're describing somebody that they've met in the system, who the system would call developmentally disabled, who they would say knows how to sing beautifully, has the gift of singing. <laughs> so they would go to somebody who is the director of a choir, and their sister was in this choir, and they would say to the director of choir, you know, I'm Mary's sister who sings in your choir, and I have a friend who sings beautifully who would love to be in a choir. Could I introduce you to her? And the person who directed the choir would trust that person. They knew Mary, and they knew they could trust her, and they would say, oh, sure, bring her around. So they would bring this labeled person there. And a part of the ability of the community to initially accept this person as being gifted depended upon their trust of the person who brought them. A fourth characteristic of many of these people was that they believed the community wanted to have in its midst 
people who were labeled. They believed, put another way, that their community was a hospitable place. So those were the primary common characteristics. Now you can imagine, this is sort of an academic, elementalistic description of folks. All of us know these folks. Some of us are these folks. And they are people who mainly see the gifts in other people, the optimistic people. They are people who like to be with people, who like to take on responsibilities, who like to be in the sharing of community and civic and associational life. Therefore, they are trusted. And because they are trusted and they've been much involved and they have an optimistic view, they believe the community works. John McKnight's researches in this area eventually led to an effort to actually instigate this kind of community building in the Logan Square neighborhood in Chicago. Its inspiration was the work of a woman called Kathy Bartholomew Lorimer, whom John McKnight had encountered in Louisville, Kentucky. She had begun to take some people with maybe severe physical or mental disabilities and just walk with them each day around a local sort of suburban shopping center. And as the shopkeepers got to know her and know the person, she would watch these shopkeepers and began to see who seemed to have a special affinity for the person she was with who had a label, and then began to spend more time with that person in the shop of the person who seemed to be most responsive and then began to leave the person in that <laughs> shop and, and go on. And she left a man who couldn't speak. I think he, the label might have been, he had the, the cerebral palsy in a little French bakery shop that had a few little tables where coffee was served, where the woman who ran it seemed to have an affinity for him. And he became sort of a regular there. And she introduced another fellow who didn't speak, but liked to play with computers. And she introduced him to a man who seemed to have some affinity for him, who ran a running a store for runner's shoes. And he began to type out the little descriptive slips that described each of these very technically complex running shoes that were put in a little holder beneath each shoe. And then all the runners came into the shop. And he would sit there and listen, love being a part of the runner's culture, began to be taken to the marathon runs where they ran, and became a part of that life. And I had learned from her about what she was doing, and she indicated to me that she was going to come to Chicago. And I thought, well, maybe we can work together and we can see in a neighborhood whether you could find people who would say, yes, we believe those people out there with those labels, that those people have gifts. And if we could get them in the community, the community would be strengthened because of those gifts. And they would be greatly advantaged because they would be in the community. The community building project in Logan Square has now been in existence for some five years. During that time, people who were previously isolated have been made welcome in families and churches, grocery stores and beauty parlors, 
daycare centers, and after-school clubs. And this mixed inner-city neighborhood, McKnight says, has been immeasurably strengthened and enriched. In Logan Square, after two years, we interviewed the people from all groups and associations who had been principal in their commitments or relationships with the labeled person who had been introduced into the group or the enterprise or the organization. And one of the things that was the most significant, I believe, was that to the open-ended question, how would you describe the relationship with so-and-so, everybody began by telling about what positive benefit that relationship had given them. And nobody began by saying, this person is incontinent and I am constantly involved in the dilemma of whether or not their pants are going to be wet. They didn't start there. They told us about what that person had contributed to their life. And they also didn't say, what's been really wonderful is for me to see how much we've been able to help Mary, the labeled person. They didn't say that either. It's the principal thing. They said, what she did for me. And the type of things that people said about what that person did were, most commonly they would say, she has taught me to appreciate how much I have. And then, secondly, because of her condition, I have come to see what an incredible person she has and what she has overcome. Those two understandings. Oh, how rich I am. You see, as an organizer, that's what I was trying to convince people of. I was out trying to say to people, who felt beaten and losers, <laughs> hey, no, <laughs> you've got a gift. Listen, stand up. You are somebody. And I think there's another thing which people didn't report so vividly, but I think they all saw themselves in the person who the diagnosticians and needs needers had lied about and said, what's important about them is this great inability. What's important about them is that gnarled body. What's important about them is their untalkingness. But you lied to me. Because what's important about them is that they are the first people in years who came to me and made me see how lucky I am. And they are the first people I have seen in years who have struggled more than anybody else I know, in spite of everything that they don't have, to be what I've seen as their gift. So that's a powerful, powerful experience in the lives of people. Shortly after the Logan Square project got underway, John McKnight received an invitation to attempt the same sort of thing in Canada. The invitation came from the director of the British Columbia Association for Community Living, which represents people with mental handicaps. 
he asked McKnight to go to Powell River and to the northern city of Prince George to see if he could interest citizens in those communities in helping to bring people with disabilities back into the community. McKnight agreed and presented himself in Prince George. The local director of the Community Living Association there in that community, a woman who had been there many years and knew a lot of people, prepared a list for me of the 10 people she thought were the best connected people in the community. Then uh, we winnowed through those people and we finally agreed, I blindly, to start with one of these people. The person they chose was Bob Harkins, a prominent local broadcaster on both radio and television, an alderman, and an active member of a number of other important local boards and associations. I was fascinated by John. I didn't know what to expect. I knew nothing of the Center for Urban Affairs and Policy Research at Northwestern University with which he was connected. But I recognized him, I think as everyone does, uh, after they've been in his company for a very short period of time, that this is a very special human being. And the message that he brings to people is, a, is, is one, it's very inspiring. I think if you sit with John, you very quickly get on board, at least I did. But I guess I, I did it for selfish reasons at first, because I wanted to know more about this man, and I wanted to be associated with him. Basically, what had precipitated John's visit here was a move by the provincial government to downsize some of the institutions in the province that were dealing with uh, adults who had uh, labeled adults in the sense that they were labeled as mentally handicapped. So a lot of these people who were institutionalized almost at birth came back to their communities as adults. So we were taking those people who had returned to the community to group homes and their own apartments but in many cases were still very isolated from the mainstream of society. And then it was our goal to, to, to make those connections and to bring these people into society to build friendships. To this end, Bob Harkins assembled a group of people he knew well and trusted. Many of them were also prominent and influential citizens of Prince George. A difference from Logan Square, where the work was carried out under the auspices of the local neighborhood association. They called themselves the Joshua Committee, after the biblical Joshua, whose trumpet blew down the walls of Jericho. And they began their work with a visit to a newly established group home. It was a very awkward time for the members of the committee and also, I'm sure, for the residents. We were uncomfortable because we hadn't known these people, and some of them had very profound handicaps in terms of, or disabilities, in terms of communication and, and uh, verbal communication, I should say, because we very quickly discovered that they, they did have great communicating skills in terms of uh, high spirits and smiles and laughing eyes and all of those good things, but uh, verbally they, they couldn't communicate. And very s quickly, without our recognizing it, this, this discomfort, I guess you'd call it, quickly broke down and we found ourselves totally involved in having, uh, having fun. We had a, 
a tea party with them and uh, and just had a great afternoon. And when we came away from that, a lot of the reservation that we had as individuals was removed, and we knew that uh, that it would work because if it worked for us, it would work for other peoples like us in the community. The Joshua Committee evolved into what today is called Project Friendship. Through its offices and influence, many people who were once isolated in institutions have become part of the everyday life of Prince George. One of them, whom Bob Harkins came to know well, was Lloyd Hansen. He had been institutionalized from, I guess he was a very, very young child, and he came back here at the age of 18. He couldn't speak, he couldn't walk, but he had the most expressive eyes that I've ever seen, and I think anyone that visited Lloyd and looked into his eyes recognized that there was a wall there that he couldn't break through, but behind that wall was a, a, a great spirit of, of joy and, uh, and happiness, and he loved sports, particularly hockey. So we got Lloyd going to the hockey games. And the Spruce Kings, the junior hockey club here, they kind of adopted him too. He, he they would, he'd go into the, into the dressing room after the games, and we had uh, hockey fans that, that took him to the games, and he thoroughly enjoyed them. I, I can recall one time I took uh, Lloyd to a Harlem Globetrotters uh, basketball game, and. Uh, if you've ever been to the Harlem Globetrotters and all the showbiz that goes with the, the game of basketball and the upbeat music and the whole show, uh, Lloyd just, just literally, he just laughed all the way through it. And it was, it was these kind of outings with Lloyd that uh, were very, very special to Lloyd and, and they were very special to me. Unfortunately, Lloyd passed away Quite often, people like Lloyd, who can't move around too much, and they they run into a lot, and they're very, very fragile physically. And uh, he got pneumonia and slipped away. But he was a a very, very special human being. While he was here, he went to school here, and uh, the husband of one of Lloyd's uh, teachers wrote a poem about him, and uh, and it's something that's uh, that captured the spirit of Lloyd and so many other people like Lloyd. It's entitled Enchanted Boy and it reads like this. I am enchanted, rendered small within my fragile, sweet perfection. I am strong. You cannot see the private powers that I hold within my tiny curled up hands. I am wise with many private wisdoms that I keep within my secret skull. Private truths remain unspoken until the evil spell is broken. And I think that says a lot about Lloyd. And that's why it's important for people like him not to be isolated, because they enjoy the company and friendship and hospitality of other people. And basically, that's what John McKnight's message is, and that's the one that, uh, that we've tried to uh, put in place in this community. John McKnight is no longer as involved as he was in the day-to-day -day workings of Project Friendship. In its infancy, he spent time every month in Prince George and Powell River, where he initiated a similar effort. Today, Project Friendship is coordinated by Sandra Nahornoff. 
I enjoy spending time with people, and I have, I guess you would say, as John would put it, the ability to identify people's capacities and people's gifts. And I guess I'm just kind of a born matchmaker when you get right down to it, you know. And there's one of those people usually in every crowd. <laughs> you know, sometimes people will see me coming and go, uh-oh. <laughs> Did I ask you what interests you had? <laughs> and, uh, and trying to matchmake and share those interests. It's a waste if I see someone with a, with a lot of talent not somehow using it and, and putting it uh, out there for people also to enjoy. Sandra Nahornoff shares John McKnight's belief that services, however necessary, isolate people. To belong, she says, people must taste unforced, unpaid acceptance. You don't really belong in a community unless you have roots put down. And for somebody that has been institutionalized or has a great wall of service providing a lot of physical care for the person uh, and may not have anyone but paid people to be in their lives to provide for them, uh, they don't really belong in the community. And often they will tell me they don't feel they belong either. You know, they people treat them differently or... Um, they don't welcome them or they might want to do something and um, basically are told by maybe staff or uh, family members that no, you can't do it, Uh, you wouldn't be accepted or you don't belong or physically you're not capable. And these people are not going to belong, are not going to be integrated until they actually have set down some roots within the community, that they can feel that they could cross that bridge and actually come within the community and feel it to be their home. Uh, It's like being caught in two worlds. You're being told that you're a citizen, that now you're part of this community that you've been sent back to, uh, and yet you're still behind walls of of service, and you don't feel that you can cross that bridge, you're taken out as an activity or a program into the community, taught about the community, but not to feel accepted. Yes, we do provide, you know, uh, wheelchair accessible places and things like that, but do you really want to go there by yourself? I mean, I would think we could even transfer this to people that have been uh, in the prison system. They don't feel they maybe belong when they come back to a community. And I think we could certainly move or speed up the process in which a person actually becomes integrated into a community and is actually accepted and belonging by involving them and and getting their feet down. Getting people's feet down in the community is what Sandra Nahornoff does. The results are chronicled in a recent publication of Project Friendship called the Prince George Connector. It contains story after story of loneliness and isolation overcome. And these stories continue. I received a phone call recently of a young girl who had just moved into town. Could I meet her and see? She doesn't know anyone. Um, Get her involved, see what we could do. This young lady has an interest in Barbie dolls and will spend up to four hours a day playing with Barbies, which is considered inappropriate for someone who's 19 coming on 20. 
And um, I looked at this, and I looked at her collection of Barbies and things, and, and everybody's frowned on this. You don't just cut something like that off. And you cannot say, I suppose, from some standpoints, that this is necessarily a gift or something that she contributes, but it is certainly an interest of something that she really enjoys doing. So I got back to her, and I took her, actually, to a meeting uh, last week, the first meeting of... Um, of this year for the Prince George District Doll Collection Club. They collect dolls. Now these women take this very seriously and some 25 women had shown up with some of the dolls that they had been collecting, some of them who had been on holidays this year around Europe and things had collected dolls, some of them collect international dolls. They trade, they have, they actually have doll shows and swaps and uh, it's very um, extensive their involvement and their fun as well. It was interesting because she brought her Barbies to show them and of course they were just thrilled with this and she told them all about her 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 love of Barbies and collecting them and stuff. So they said to her, well you know we have swaps and we know people that can do this and we could take you garage sailing on Saturdays <laughs> Sundays, and you could start, you know, um, really increasing the size of your collection. And of course, her little eyes were just absolutely popping out because she was just thrilled. Here was the first people that she'd met that hadn't told her that what she was doing was basically silly and not acceptable. And of course, these are adults. <laughs> and this, this just is a little bit of an example of to say that she uh, plays with Barbies is not considered acceptable. And yet to say that she is a doll collector, belongs to a club that, that uh, you know, makes and, and sells and shows and everything else their dolls, is a whole different ball game. That's considered acceptable. So it's turned this around where she's met some people that accept her uh, and her idiosyncrasy because they have the same one. They think she's great. I met a fellow who told me that he loved um, electronics and his dream was to go to electronics school. And I says, well, why don't you? And he said to me, well, because I'm retarded. And he looked at me like, didn't I know? And I said, well, why should that stop you? And he kind of still looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> We contacted uh, our local college, who has a very large electronics department, two labs and and uh, five instructors. And uh, they said, of course, he'd never pass the prerequisites. You know, he'd never be able to attend there. And so I thought, well, this isn't quite right either. So I approached... Um, the head of the electronics department said, I've met a man who has an incredible aptitude for electronics and I'd really like to introduce him to you. So off we went. I took his father with, a, with us because he used to own an electronics store in, in here and used to fix all kinds of electronical gadgets for people. And we both went down to the college and, uh, and introduced Philip to... Uh, the electronics instructor who took one look at Philip and of course realized that uh, there was going to be a problem that Philip probably would never be able to attend his school. And meantime, the labs had been set up for testing the first year students at the end of the year. 
and everything in the lab had a number on it and they had their uh, multiple choice questions that they would walk through and actually state what each piece of equipment or component or whatever was and uh, it was interesting because Philip decided or John decided maybe we'd take Philip through and just see how much this man knows and out of those 100 objects there was not one that Philip didn't know the name of and how it worked and John was so impressed by the time we ended there and went over to the second year lab he says you know he says uh, I think we have a place for you and Philip said um, he, he inquired there was an object over in one of the corners and he wanted to know what it is he's quite inquisitive and and John says you know he says I haven't got a clue what it is it just came in and of course Philip went over and scrutinized this piece of equipment and John says well I'll go get Lance because Lance knows he's one of the other instructors he knows what it is <laughs> and off he went and he brought Lance back and Philip come up and he says I think it's one of those cones you know that are off these microwave towers he says and um, he explained what it was which didn't mean a whole lot to me <laughs> but it certainly did to these two fellows and Lance says as a matter of fact it is it's off Tabor Mountain here and BC Tell brought it in for us to repair and of course that did it they were totally convinced that uh, Philip was legitimate and really did have an aptitude for electronics so from there they um, they said that they had uh, a lot of equipment that was donated to the college that they would dismantle over the summer. And uh, they used the components in their projects. And they asked Philip if he'd like to be part of that in return for uh, being in on the projects that the components were being used for. And that's going back some three years ago, and Philip still goes to the college a couple of times a week. He has it on his own station, and he works on dismantling c components and and equipment, and he puts all kinds of things together, and he has a place to go. And it's funny because over the years, it wasn't so much the idea of, of the education, but it gave him a connection um, that rooted him to the community, that make, made him uh, part of it. And Philip has that now through the college and is recognized as someone that does contribute and who does very much so belong here in Prince George. One of the most remarkable stories in the brief annals of Project Friendship concerns a man who loves the music of Mozart, named Edward Heim. Unable to talk and confined to bed for over 40 years, he was moved into a group home in Prince George in 1989. There, with help, he gradually grew strong enough to be moved into a wheelchair. The staff in the group home noticed that Edward smiled when classical music was played on the radio. So Bob and Barbara Harkins began to take him with them to the concerts of the Prince George Symphony Orchestra, out into a world he had never seen. Soon, as John McKnight relates, the director of the orchestra, John Unsworth, who was also a director of Project Friendship, had invited Edward to attend practices as well. So arrangements were made so he could come to the rehearsal, and at the rehearsal he could be up on the stage, right there beside John with the music as it was being rehearsed and played. 
And then all the people in the symphony got to know him. And they got to see this wonderful gift that Edward Hyde had. Because you could see on his face how much he loved this music. They could see it. It was just like, wouldn't that be wonderful for you if you could play a program and see somebody listening to the program and all of a sudden their life lit up? Well, that's what they could see in Edward. And so he was such a vivid illumination before them about the value of their music. He was teaching them the value of their music. And so he became very much a part of that group. Edward's pleasure grew until finally, at one concert, during a passage where the music dropped dramatically in volume and then began a slow crescendo, he loudly exclaimed, Oh boy, oh boy. These were the first words anyone had ever known Edward to utter. His friends were delighted, but other patrons later complained to the orchestra about what they viewed as a disturbance. Edward's friends reluctantly stopped taking him to concerts and attempted to teach him to restrain his pleasure by removing him from practices when his expressions of enjoyment became too exuberant. This worked to a degree, but the problem, particularly acute with the music of Mozart, persisted. It started to get to a point where they thought, well, you know, we really need to also tell the community how much this means to him instead of them just cutting him off from it. So um, because of his love of Mozart and the fact that Mozart's 200th birthday concert and celebration was coming up, they decided to actually name it the Edward Heim Concert. And it was two days of sold-out concerts, and at both concerts, Edward um, was the guest and at the concerts, John Unsworth, the conductor and director, spoke and told the audience Edward's story. Since that night, when Edward Heim and Mozart shared the bill at the Prince George Symphony, there have been no further complaints. Project Friendship, as its name suggests, has placed itself deliberately outside the sphere of service institutions. Bob Harkins, Sandra Nahornoff, and their colleagues have worked with these institutions, but they have always stuck to the vision they originally shared with John McKnight, a hospitable community where relationships grow out of affinity and the ability to discern gifts. The pitfalls of basing relationships on service, Sandra Nahornoff says, became clearer to her through her friendship with someone Bob Harkins talked about earlier, the late Lloyd Hansen. Lloyd loved hockey, loved hockey. He couldn't speak, he had cerebral palsy, he sat in a small chair and, and he wasn't a very big fellow, he, but he loved hockey nonetheless and he had a wonderful sense of humour and I connected him with a bit of a fan club that loved to go to our local hockey games. And uh, nobody could take him on this one occasion and I hated to see him just missing out because nobody was available that particular night so I volunteered to take him. Well, I might be a Canadian, but I'm not crazy about hockey. <laughs> and um, I took a book. <clears throat> and I read this book while he was watching hockey, and I noticed that after about the first half an hour, he was sitting there and he'd quieted right down. There was no more 
you know, grunts that he was making and smiles and, you know, if fights break out, he gets right excited and stuff. But he was just all of a sudden sitting there like he was absolutely bored to tears. And it hit me that what I was doing is exactly what a paid staff person does in essence or is expected to do when they take a person on an outing. I had taken him. I was not part of it, and I felt I felt actually quite guilty. I put the book away and uh, decided I better get into the game, and I, I moved his chair over to where a group of people who were actually cr- quite rowdy were sitting. Um, they were swearing and yelling and having a great time, and I moved him in there, and of course by the time it was contagious, by the time I finished, I was getting just as rowdy as them. And Lloyd just absolutely loved it. And uh, and then it dawned on me, belonging isn't taking someone out. It's not volunteering your time. It's sharing something of yourself. So I tell people that I'm not looking, in essence, for volunteers. But if you have a gift, an interest, or something that you wish to share, please share it with these people. So you're saying that this is an overflowing. That's right. Rather than a, a, a dutiful that's attention. Right. You bet. It's something that has to be instilled from the heart. Friendship is really the key to the whole project, and developing friendships and relationships is, is what grounds us to the community and makes us accept it and belong. I don't think there are too many barriers. We've connected people that can't speak, can't hear, and can't see, and can't walk, and uh, have had wonderful friendships and relationships develop. I think the thing that John has conveyed to us, and I think it's a very important thing to remember, that this can't be another service world that we're developing. This is Project Friendship's Bob Harkins again. What we're developing are friendships and hospitality, and of course, those, you know, you're not paid for those things. Those things come through, uh, through connecting people with other people. And so we've kept our sort of paid staff down to a minimum. I think we're all involved in this for very personal reasons, and we're trying to do things on a one-to-one scale, and and, and we don't go out and make a, a big fuss about raising money. It's one of those things we don't beat the drum about. I think it's a personal connection. programs of this series about John McKnight have dwelt at length on the fundamental distinction between community and system on which Bob Harkins and Sandra Nahornoff have based Project Friendship. This distinction allows us to see community, McKnight also calls it citizen space or associational space, as an autonomous realm with its own ways, its own integrity, and its own potential for addressing the evils which beset us at the end of the 20th century. It delimits community as what can never be bought or sold or subjected to professional standards, what can never be managed, monitored, or fixed without losing its nature. But drawing attention to this realm also presents a danger of which McKnight is keenly aware, a danger that this distinction will be lost and community will come to be seen 
not as what simply belongs to us as human beings, but as a lever of policy. I worry over and over that even the saying of what we're saying will be heard by people who are managers and experts in systems, and that it will be quantified, systematized, administered, and that all we will have done is guided the way for them to finally colonize more of the everyday life of community folks. So that, for instance, an example I could see is that the human service systems will say, if we can initiate people being connected into community, then we can begin to screen the people they'll be connected with, right? A good service system would say, no, we don't want to connect our people, just anybody. There are rapists out there, and all kinds of people that might do bad things, and we have diagnostic tools. So we'll ask for citizens to volunteer to relate to the people in our domain. And then we'll test those volunteers. And those that pass the tests will give training. And after they're trained, then we will connect them with our people. That's the nightmare ahead. It's the absolute perversion that I can see happening in any day, in any place, to the kind of ventures and initiatives that I described in Logan Square and Prince George. How can you ever protect against that? I don't know, but the best that I can do is to say that what we can do is tell you some stories but what we can't do is give you a study. Because a study is a tool a system uses to understand and command. And so we've done no studies of this work. But I can tell you only the story of Edward Hyde and of Bob Parkins. And if you know Bob in your town, and you know Edward in your town, and you're well connected, maybe you can be a citizen too. If I had a future that I would hope for, the first would be that however this activity can develop continuity, that the form it would take for its continuity would be like Alcoholics Anonymous or Alinsky's Neighborhood Organizing Movement. That is. No school has ever taken it over. It remains within the hands of the popular and is defined and carried forward in that sector, the community sector of society. If this needs to continue, I would hope that that's the form and that it can escape becoming a new colonializing method for the human service professionals, especially the progressives who worry me the most. The second thing I would hope for this kind of activity is that it would end. You see, I don't see this as an eternal effort. 
it seems to me the question is whether we can shift our understanding at the community level that the culture will shift. And what I have as my vision is some activities now that will at least shift the culture's view of where a person's life ought to be lived in the community or in a system. And that we would think about the system the way we would think about the police. <laughs> we may need a few of them, but anytime anybody's life is there, it's a place nobody'd want to be, and we want as few people as possible to be there. Rather than, aren't we lucky we're surrounded by these wonderful human services? <laughs> and they're taking care of all those people that we can't take care of, we're not expert enough, we don't have enough time for them, and after all, they're a burden on us. That's my goal. Why? I think we're back to the beginning. <laughs> Everybody has a gift, and a good community is a place where all those gifts are given. On ideas, you've listened to the concluding program in our three-part series, Community and Its Counterfeits. It featured John McKnight of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Also heard were Bob Harkins and Sandra Nahornoff of Project Friendship in Prince George, British Columbia. Technical production was by Lauren Tulk. Production assistants, Liz Nodge and Gail Brownell. You can get a printed transcript of tonight's program for $7 plus GST or the entire three-part series for $18 plus GST. To order your copy now, phone 1-800-363-1530. That's toll-free. Again, the number one 800 363-1530. Or you can send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm David Cayley. Stay tuned for Episode 2 of Healthy, Wealthy, and Dead, a fast-paced, tongue-in-cheek mystery from the Regina writer Suzanne North, between the covers, following the 10 o'clock news. <laughs>